You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church. So good to be with you this morning to preach on 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Timothy. We'll be in our main teaching text in just a few minutes. There's a moment in the life of Christ where he's calling his disciples. Now, he had many different followers, but if you know anything about Jesus, he had 12 uh, disciples. He had these 12 specific followers who traveled with him doing ministry. And one of those men was a man named Matthew. And Matthew is one of the least likely people that you would expect to become uh, part of Christ's inner circle, part of the 12. He wouldn't necessarily make the top 12 because of his profession. He was a tax collector. And for Jesus to invite a tax collector to be one of his closest followers would be called scandalous, to say the least. The religious leaders, the the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, hated tax collectors because they were working for their enemies. A tax collector was someone who worked for the Roman Empire. And so for someone who was Jewish to go into that profession, it wasn't uh, necessarily you know, just that they were good with numbers or math. It's, they, were, they were literally collecting money from their kinsmen to give to their oppressors. And so Jesus calls Matthew to be one of his followers. And this not only is this scandalous enough, but afterwards there's a party. It's like... You know, it's like, congratulations, Matthew, you're now, and so, so Jesus goes over to Matthew's house, and he has a party with all of his tax collector buddies, and uh, this just incites a little bit of public scrutiny towards Jesus. The Pharisees want to know why. Why? Why are you spending time with tax collectors and sinners? And this is what we see in Christ's response, Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. But when he heard it, this is when Jesus heard the scrutiny, when he heard the pushback, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. He's like, I'll give you something to chew on, okay? I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus essentially says to the religious leaders, oh, you want me to stop spending time with sinners? I'm gonna spend even more time with them. And this is not an isolated moment. If you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, time and time and time again, it's not that Jesus avoided religious people. He was also found trying to save religious people. But he spent consistently time with the outcast, time with the sinners. And I I wanted to highlight that this morning because the reality is Jesus is a man on a mission to seek and to save the lost. And the church, one of the primary reasons that the church exists is to join Christ in that mission to preach the gospel to the world and to, to, to go and make disciples, right? That's what he's tasked us with as his followers. But so often what can happen is we get off mission. 
And even maybe, maybe a church that began with this great calling or this great mission, we want to go, we want to make disciples, we want to preach the gospel, we want to reach the city for Jesus, given enough time, we can so easily drift into that same question from the Pharisees. What's the biggest danger in the church getting off mission, by the way? Is it external opposition? Is it a culture that's hostile to Christianity? I hear a lot of Christians talking about that. Don't you see the policies? Don't you see the education? Don't you see the world out there? The reality is the greatest danger to derailing the mission of the gospel is not external opposition. Historically, look through the last 2,000 years of church history. Historically, the kingdom of heaven has thrived in hostile environments. It's like it's refining fire that whittles us down to a faithful remnant. That, that you're not in it for the consumer Christianity. You're in it for Jesus and his mission. Life or death, come what may. The biggest obstacle to the church staying on mission is Christians. Who ask that question, what about us? Jesus is that shepherd who leaves the 99 to seek and to save the one, and it's the 99 who fuss and complain about it. What about us? What about us? And the reason why I bring this up is because the church in Ephesus has gotten off track in its mission. The Apostle Paul went to Ephesus on a literal missionary journey to go and to join Christ in the mission, to seek and to save the lost, the lost sheep in Ephesus. And here he's hearing about reports that these false teachers have started teaching, it's all about us. It's all about the insider. It's all about the 99. And so today, we're going to see the Apostle Paul's instructions to the church in Ephesus on how do we get back on mission. You want to do that, church? You want to get back on mission? Let's jump in. 1 Timothy chapter 2, first verse. First of all, okay, first things first. Here's your instructions. How do we be a church on mission? First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for how many people? All people for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Here's our, here's our first strategy. You want to be a church on mission? Here's how we start. Start with prayer. You got to start with prayer. Prayer is the fuel for renewal and revival. You want to see God move in a city? You want to see God shake a nation? You want to see God reach your neighborhood? You want to see God reach your family members? Start with prayer. Because God causes the growth. People can run programs. People can preach sermons. People can sing songs. People can run events. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But people cannot change a sinful heart. We cannot, I cannot take a heart of stone and give someone a heart of flesh. Only the Holy Spirit of God can change someone's heart. And so I, 
if we're doing all the right evangelistic things, we're even doing the right programs, we're preaching the right sermons, but we haven't prayed, we're, we're neglecting the very power of God that's available to us. So what are we gonna start with, church? What are we gonna start with? Prayer. We're gonna start with prayer. We're gonna start with prayer. First things first, the Apostle Paul says. He says, first things first, you gotta, you gotta get the, you gotta get the uh, supplications, you gotta get the prayers, you gotta get the intercessions, you gotta get the thanksgivings. That's four different ways of saying pray. If you're taking notes, every single one of those words is a different form, it's a different kind of prayer. Here's how we might say it today. Paul wants us to pray all the prayers. How many kinds of prayers does he want? He wants you to pray all of them. Pray all the prayers. You can write that. That's your notes. Write that down. Pray all the prayers for all the people. This is huge. We cannot begin to reach the lost world that we live in until we've gone to our knees in prayer. And I just want to go down through these four different terms. There's, there, there's somewhat of just you know, redundancy and repetition, and, and Paul's making a point. He's stacking these terms, but there is a little bit of uniqueness to each one of them. So let's dive into each one of these uh, Greek words for prayer. The first one, supplications, is petition. It's deasis is the Greek word. And it's the idea of just asking. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7, 7. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. This is the most basic kind of prayer, by the way. This is human nature is to ask for help. How do I know? We have three small children. (laughs) Before a child knows how to speak, What's the first thing that you hear out of a baby's mouth? Crying. Hopefully right right after the baby is born. Breath in, crying comes out, right? This This is like we were made to cry for help, and this is the very first kind of prayer that most people begin to pray. Before you're praying and giving God praise, before you're interceding for others, what do we do? We just ask God for help, and I want you to know that's good. God asks us to ask him for things. Like a child, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is for who? It's for the children. If you want to receive the kingdom, you you must receive it like a child, and that means we must become poor in spirit and recognize you you can't knock down the door to heaven. You can't find the right key yourself. You can't pick the lock on the door. That we ask, we seek, we... We knock like a child who can't even reach the doorknob. That's what we do. We ask God for help. And by the way, in Matthew 7, those are all present active words. They're they're present active verbs. So keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. So we don't just start with prayer. We we keep praying. We live by prayer. That's the first word. Uh, The second one is the word just for prayer. It's pros UK. It's the most common word used for prayer. And in Matthew uh, 21, 13, significantly, Jesus goes into the temple and he's really upset. This is like, the, you know, he's flipping tables. He's really upset about all of the uh, corruption and, 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 and swindling people out of money that's taking place. And he says this, it is written, my house shall be called a, pr- a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Sometimes in the New Testament, 
Instead of using the word synagogue, this word, this noun, prosuke, is used. Let's go to the prayer. And everyone would understand if you were to say, let's go to the prayer, what are you talking about? You're talking about the place of worship. Because perhaps more than anything else, places of worship should be known as houses of prayer. I wonder if people would know our church as a house of prayer. This is more, by the way, than just having a prayer ministry. We have a prayer team. I love our prayer team. This is more than running prayer events. This is a culture, a community of faithful prayer. What about your home? Is your home a house of prayer? Are you teaching your kids how to pray? Are you praying together as husband and wife? Is your house holy ground where there's tears in your carpet for the prayers that you've prayed? We did a prayer hike on, uh, on Thursday. Here's some pictures from the prayer hike. And uh, there was also a women's prayer walk on Friday. And uh, I was like, man, if only I preached this sermon before those events, we might have had a few more people. But it was, it was powerful, powerful times of prayer and worship. And here's the reality, though. You don't have to wait for us to plan an all-church prayer event to pray, do you? Do you, anyone hike? Just raise, anyone hike? Yeah, I love hiking. I love walking. You can pray while you hike. You hike with a buddy, you can pray with that person. You can pray for that person while you're on a walk with them. In your neighborhood, go for a walk, take a lap, pray for those houses. This is how we start. This is where it all begins. We start with prayer. Would our church, would your home, be known as a house of prayer. The third word is intercession. This is entuxis, the Greek word entuxis. And uh, we see Jesus talking about this in Luke chapter 11, five and six. He gives this story of a friend at midnight. He says this, the friend uh, it says, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. So this is midnight. Imagine this, right? Knock on your door. What is prayer? It's asking, seeking, knocking, right? Knocking on the doors of heaven. And so this friend has a buddy who shows up to his house, and he has bare cupboards. Do you, do you realize that's all of us, by the way? Right? That ultimately on our own, we have, no, we have really nothing to offer the world in terms of salvation, right? Jesus in John 15 says, apart from me, you can do Nothing. We can't change the world, right? And so this, this, this person, by the way, in an honor-shame culture, to have nothing to set before your, your friend in hospitality, right? It's like unheard of. Like, you've got to have something. You've got to help them. They've just arrived on a journey, maybe on foot, perhaps, right? They're hungry. And so at midnight, this friend goes to his neighbor, and the neighbor is meant to be God, Right? Goes to his neighbor, and he has the audacity to wake him up. And what does the neighbor do in the story? Everyone's asleep. Go away, right? Do you ever feel like that, by the way, that you're praying, and God's like, not now, right? And, uh, and so what the, what the friend does is he keeps knocking. He bangs on the door. He says, I know you got bread in there. 
I've seen it. God has the power. You, we've got to believe that, that God has the power to answer our prayers. And we go before God on behalf of others. Intercession, another way of uh, defining intercession is I'm asking for a friend. And by the way, that's, that's a good way. If you ever need to ask for a favor, just insert someone else's name in there, right? I'm, not a, I'm asking for a friend. It's not me. I want you to help my friend out. And I'll be with them, you know, but it's, you ask for a friend, and the reality is there's deeper levels of boldness and compassion when we intercede for others. I don't know about you, but when I go before God for petitions, which is asking for me, asking for myself, you know, I'll ask God for things, and then after a while, I'll be like, I don't know, maybe I'm going to ask for the, for the wrong thing. Maybe I'm being too selfish with this. But when I'm asking on behalf of someone else, I'm like, God, heal that person. God, save that person. God, provide for that person. God, don't you see how deep their hurt is right now, right? I don't typically get to the point of tears in my petitions, but when I start interceding, something happens in my heart where the Holy Spirit is growing deeper levels of compassion. We wanna be a church that intercedes for this world. Intercession cultivates compassion for the lost. And then the fourth word that Paul uses for prayer is eucharistia. It's where the word the Eucharist comes from. It just means thanksgiving. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul would write to the church, and he says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. When you begin to be the kind of person who prays about every situation, you pray, for all, you pray all the prayers for all the people in all situations. You start praying in that kind of way. What you'll begin to recognize is you'll begin to see God moving. You'll notice it more. And I believe because God will be moving more. God actually hears our prayers. He honors our prayers, right? If we sit around, we never ask, we never seek, we never knock. Maybe we'll never really see God do miracles in our lives and in the world around us. But when you pray all the prayers, you'll begin to recognize even in seasons of trial and suffering, there's things to be thankful for. He's given you peace in the midst of chaos. He's given you joy in the midst of trials. And this is not some cliche, for every cloud there's a silver lining, right? This isn't just look at the sunny side of life. This is genuine deep. We're weeping with those who weep, we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we recognize there is still joy in the midst of suffering. And we can, we can still give thanks. And by the way, a lot of people, like Thanksgiving every year, every November, go around the table, what are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? And people ask that question, even in this world. But we don't just ask, what are you thankful for? We say, who are you thankful to? This is one of the most powerful things about praying prayers of thanksgiving is not necessarily even what you're thankful for. It's the fact that you're rightfully addressing that gratitude towards who? Towards God. Because you're recognizing that you didn't do it yourself. You don't just pray about something. You get an answer to that prayer and then think, what a coincidence. <laughs> right? Remember the story of the lepers with Jesus and there's 10 of them and they all get healed, by the way, on the way to the synagogue to, to get washed and only one comes back. And what does Jesus say? Where's the rest of those guys? 
Was there only one healed? How many were healed? Oh, everyone was healed. And I wonder if, if, if that's how it is in our prayers. If only about 10% of us on average remember after the answer to go back and to thank God and to recognize it's not just what I'm thankful for, it's who I'm thankful to. Will you pray all the prayers? What aspect of your prayer rhythm needs to be adjusted? What kind of prayer in your life are you neglecting? By the way, four isn't even all the prayers. There's more, there's more kinds of prayer even than this. And so for, for you, what aspect, what element of your prayer, what kind of prayer have you been neglecting? This week, I wanna challenge you to stretch and to grow your prayer rhythms. If you're only ever asking for petitions for yourself, there's nothing wrong with, I don't, you don't need to feel guilty for praying for yourself. Maybe you're in a season where you have a lot of needs. It might do you some good to say, for this next five minutes, I'm only gonna ask for others. Do you think that would help your heart and your perspective on your situation? You're gonna take some of that pent up passion in your prayers for petitioning and you say, you know what? I'm actually gonna focus on praying for the lost right now. Or maybe, or maybe you have been asking and asking and asking. There's not a lot of praise. There's not a lot of thanksgiving, right? And you just, you just, you just pray and, and you just expand your prayer life. This week, what kind of prayer have you been neglecting? So that, not just what, but who? Who does Paul say we should pray for? All, all people. That is, that's the right answer. If you see, it's, it's everyone. We should pray for everyone. But then he says, especially, he lists a group of people that I think is really significant for us. He says, especially pray for kings and for any who are in positions of authority. Who are, who are kings? It's government officials. We just ask that question. What, what element of your prayer life has been lacking? Do you have Mary McLean on your prayer list? Do you have, or are you just so frustrated and you're posting on social media all the stuff you hate about your, the government officials? Are you even praying for them? Don't post before you pray. Are you praying for government officials and people in authority? Who else is someone in authority? Are you praying for your, your children's teachers? Or are you frustrated with their teaching methodology? Who are you praying for? Who's on your list? Not just the people you know, people in authority. Are you praying for your church leaders? Or are you just emailing them? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a prep, that's for next week, by the way. That's a little, that's a little preparatory uh, comment there for next week. Write that down in your notes. Pray for people in authority. Here's why. Paul says, so that you can live a peaceful, quiet life. By the way, this is not just like so that you can kick your feet up and go under the radar and just never have any issues. He says, and live a godly and dignified life. Here's the reason for this. Because people in authority, leaders in authority, you can read this in Romans 13, by the way, that there's no authority that exists other than the authority given by God. People in authority make decisions that influence the culture and the environment in which the gospel should spread. That's the reason, the entire reason. And we all know this, that certain environments are hospitable for the gospel and other environments are resistant to the gospel. And so we pray that people in authority would, would have, make wise decisions so that the gospel would take root. Here's the point. The gospel takes root in holy ground. 
in holy ground. The life that we are meant to live is when he says a peaceful and quiet life, what he's talking about is that that we would live a kind of life where we are known in our city as good citizens. We're helpful people. This is Jeremiah 29, seek the welfare of the city, right? That people actually look at, at, at followers of Jesus and like, I'm so glad that Christian is in our neighborhood, right? Jesus said, In Matthew chapter five, people will see your good deeds and they will glorify your Father in heaven. And so we pray that we would would fit in in the right ways so that we could stand out in the right ways. You see that? And I think sometimes we get those things flipped. We're standing out in a way that we're actually causing problems in our city. We're causing problems in our neighborhood. And then we're actually, in other ways, in our convictions, in our belief, in our standing on the truth of the gospel, maybe we're actually faltering in those ways and blending in a little too much. Does that make sense? This is a tension, this is a balance, but we have to be the kinds of people where the places that we live, the places that we walk, the places that we work, the places that we send our kids to school become holy ground. We pray the kingdom of heaven would come onto this planet earth where we live, where we work, where we walk, so that the gospel would take root, that these would be outposts for the sake of the gospel. You see what I mean? Prayer's the fuel. We've gotta be praying people, living godly lives, being at peace with others as much as possible so that when there are times where peace is not possible and we have to stand on the truth of the gospel, We stand on the truth when it matters most. We haven't fought all these culture wars to try and get the world to live like Christians before they even know Christ. Do you see what I mean? So we pray for people in authority. Pray for me, okay? Please, pray for me. Pray for me. Another reason why you should pray for people in power and authority is there's often just, I believe, higher levels of spiritual attacks for people who are in authority. Because God knows that people in authority, they have the power to influence the environment, to shape the world for the sake of the kingdom. Guess who else knows that? The enemy knows that. Those are the people, I believe, who face the highest level of spiritual attacks. And so I would just, I would appreciate your prayers. This week, maybe add me to your list. Don't just add the governor and the mayor. Add me, if if I'm not, I would love to invite you to pray for me, pray for our elders, pray for our staff. And would we be people who pray especially for leaders? But we don't just pray for our leaders. Paul says pray for everyone. Pray for all people. Here's the point. We pray for all people because God wants to save all people. God's desire is to save and that everyone would come to a knowledge of the truth. This is not, by the way, universalism. Universalism is an ideology that all people will be saved regardless of their belief. Regardless of their status of having received Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, universalism is this ideology that everyone will be saved, it'll all work itself out one day, one way, or another. That's just not true. Quite simply, that's not, tr- that's not true, and that's not what Paul is saying whatsoever. There's a difference between uh, the potential for salvation, that God so loved the world, the whole world, and Christ, I believe, died for the whole world, that, that's providing the potential for salvation, and effective salvation, the fact that not, not all people will come to a knowledge of the truth. But that does not change the heart of God and his compassion and his concern to save every single human being on planet Earth. 
We see this in 2 Peter 3, 9 very clearly. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. This is not God's desire. God takes zero pleasure in the death of a human being who is not saved. God, God is not in heaven thinking, good, I'm glad that person is off of planet Earth so that they can spend eternity in hell. God takes zero pleasure. And if you take any pleasure in that, then you have, we have a problem in our hearts, don't we? That's how you get, by the way, to the point where you're like, Jesus, why are you spending so much time with tax collectors and sinners? What does God want? Not wishing any should perish, but that all should, there's that word all again. It shows up quite a few times that all should reach repentance. And I'm here to tell you, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're here in our church services today, you are in the right place because you are all. You are a person that God desires to be in relationship with him. Do you, do you know that God is being patient with you? That every day that you wake up and there's breath in, in your lungs, that is another day that God is giving you to respond to his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his love. Today is an opportunity for you. Would today be the day that you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God? You believe that he died on the cross for your sins, he rose back to life, and you receive him as your Lord and your Savior today. God is being patient with you because he loves you. He's Another way of saying he's being patient is he's waiting. God is waiting for you to come home. He's waiting for you to turn away from that old life and to turn towards him. Would you give your life to Christ? Would you give your life to Christ in baptism if you've never been baptized? It's the way Jesus Christ himself instructs us to make disciples. Go make disciples of the whole world by baptizing them. That's, that's like step one. Yo, you want to be a follower of Jesus? Let's baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want to invite you to go online, hillcityboise.org slash baptism. You can sign up. We've got church, uh, church in the park at the end of the summer, Labor Day weekend, and, and I'm praying that there will be dozens of people who profess their faith in Jesus through baptism. Do you want to see that, by the way? We want to see that. We want to see that. It's not just God who desires this for you. We as a church... We want you to know Jesus. We love you. We want to welcome you into God's family. Would you get baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And I recognize there's maybe someone here today who's like, I'm not quite there yet. The reality is, you've got to, you've got to keep coming. Maybe read the Gospels in the New Testament. Keep praying until you come to a knowledge of the truth, is what Paul says. That's what God desires, that you would, and I don't want you to go down into the water of baptism until you, you're truly there, that you've come to a knowledge of the truth, that you genuinely recognize the weight of the calling to become a follower of Jesus. But if you're there, I want to encourage you to do that. Keep coming, keep exploring, keep reading. The reality is God is patient, he's waiting for you, but I just have to give you this sober reality check. God will not wait forever. And none of us knows the days that we have on planet Earth left. And none of us knows the days until Christ returns. There will be an end date to your opportunity to put your faith in Jesus. And I don't want to paint this picture like, just stay on the fence forever. I want you to recognize God is patient. He loves you. He is kind. He is merciful. He is gracious to you. But don't wait forever. 
to put your faith in Jesus. And if today is the day of salvation for you, I wanna invite you to put your faith in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Let's continue in our text. 1 Timothy 2, verse five. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, as a ransom for all, for, you see this word all, underline it. If you like taking notes, put it as a little circle around all the words, all the words, all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying, okay? I, say, I, should, that should be, I should start saying that in my sermons. I'm not lying to you right now. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Here, the Apostle Paul addresses another ideology. We looked at universalism. Another prominent ideology in our world today is an ideology called pluralism. Pluralism is a little bit different from universalism. Universalism is that everyone will be saved regardless of their, their status, regardless of their, their belief. Pluralism is that all different beliefs are the same, essentially. Have you heard that? Have you encountered that? This is rampant in our world. It's that all different beliefs contain some knowledge of the truth, and, and even sometimes it's, it's expressed like this. Well, no one knows like the whole truth. Everyone just gets a little sliver of it, right? So whatever church you go to or whatever belief system you, uh, you, you subscribe to, everyone knows their truth. This is your truth is your truth, my truth is, right? That's, that's not universalism, by the way. That is an ideology called pluralism. And Paul, very clearly, by the way, he says, and I'm not lying about this, how many gods are there? He says, there's one God, and there's one mediator between human beings and with God. That's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. This, by the way, is very clear from even the, the beginning of Scripture in the Old Covenant. You see this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, the very first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. And in uh, the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay? So this is like Judaism 101, okay? In the Old Covenant, it's like there's one God. Now, this seems very exclusive in a culture of pluralism. This is very exclusive in some ways. There's one God, and there's one way to him. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. And that's, that's just the way things are. Truth, by its very nature, is exclusive. There cannot be multiple versions of truth. Otherwise, it's no longer truth. It's no longer reality. But this is not only exclusive. It's also incredibly inclusive. Because if there is only one God, and there's only one way to him, we have to recognize that the way is open for how many people? The way is open for all. The invitation is extended for all. Christ died for all. And so in, while, while truth, it, it's, it's exclusive, there's one God and there's one way to him, it's also this incredibly loving invitation to the world. This is why, by the way, Jesus gave the church the mission to go into the world. Because if there is only one God and there's only one way to him, who needs to hear it? Anyone who's not in Christ. All, everyone, the world needs to know there's only one way to God. That's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so I, we see three titles for Jesus here. I just want to go through these briefly because I think they're very important. We see three different nouns used for Jesus. The first one is mediator. This means that Christ 
pleads our case. The picture, I'll give you two pictures. One is in the Old Testament, there is a high priest and there's a priesthood and there's a day of atonement where one day every single year that you didn't bring your own sin or your guilt offering, but the high priest offers a sacrifice for the whole nation, right? So he, he sacrifices this animal and then he takes the blood and he goes into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkles the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. The Holy of Holies is where God's very presence is. So you have God on the inside and you have sinful people on the outside. You see that? There needs to be some kind of bridge or mediator to go and unite the people back with God. That's the high priest on the Day of Atonement. They're playing the role of a mediator. By the way, a mediator is, is someone who, who uh, helps people find common ground. They, they, they help reconcile people. Another example would be in a courtroom, a defense attorney would be considered a mediator. You have the law represented by the judge, and then you have the guilty party. And so the defense attorney is trying to help, you know, bring this person back into society. They're trying to make this, you know, help this person be declared innocent. That's a, a mediator. In Hebrews 9.15, this is what uh, author of Hebrews says about Jesus. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who were called may receive the promised in eternal inheritance since death, death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Jesus is, is our mediator. He goes before God. He pleads our case. He wants to unite us back with our Father in heaven. So picture that. He's, that's the first title. He's our mediator. He's, he's your advocate. Jesus is for you. The second title, though, is Jesus is called the man. Now, he's the man. You know what I mean? Like, he's like, you're the man, Jesus. But this is the word anthropos, not the Greek word aner. Aner is, is always, should always be translated male, sometimes husband, like, it's, like he's the man. But anthropos, it's where we get the word anthropology, it's like he's the human, okay? And this means that Christ is our representative. That's what that title means here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that Christ represents us in the same way that Adam represented us for the sake of sin, Christ Jesus represents us for the sake of righteousness. Romans chapter five, verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's a reference to Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now picture this again. If he's our representative, picture that courtroom, okay? Courtroom analogy, that you have the judge, you have us as the guilty party, guilty in our, in our sins, and the defense attorney is pleading our case, but instead of listing our own actions, he starts listing his own actions. Does that make sense? That's what it means for Jesus to be our representative, is when God looks at us, when we're in Christ, he doesn't see our own sins. What he sees is Christ's righteousness. It's called imputed righteousness is the theological term for that. We are given, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness something that we could never earn or attain on our own. That's beautiful, by the way, for Christ to be our representative. And the third title given to Christ here is he's our ransom. He's a ransom. This means that Christ died in our place, and you can add, on our behalf. This is the theological term for this is the substitutionary atonement. Picture that day of atonement. You have the priest 
What Jesus Christ is, he's not only our mediator, he's also himself the sacrificial lamb. That's what's happening on the cross. He himself, his own blood, the blood of the son of God himself is poured out for the sake of all sinners. This is not just a theology found in the Apostle Paul. You wanna read this straight from the mouth of the Son of God himself? Matthew 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, as everyone say it, a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, that's my primary purpose, to give my life as a ransom for many. And so in that picture, we get Christ's righteousness, he gets our punishment on the cross. This exchange is the most beautiful display of love that the world will ever see. We get Christ's righteousness, he gets our punishment on the cross. That's the truth of the gospel. That's the gospel. And Paul shares about the gospel, and he says, listen, there's one God, there's one way to God, and he's so thankful. You just, it just oozes gratitude. He's like, I'm thankful. I get, to be a pre- I get to preach that. You know, I feel that as well. I'm so honored. Any opportunity I get to preach the gospel, overwhelmed with, with just the in, immense honor and privilege. He's like, I get to preach that. I was appointed as an apostle. That's like a missionary. I get to go out and preach that all around. He says, I'm a teacher. I get to teach people how to follow Jesus. And even if you're not called to vocational ministry, that maybe you don't get your paycheck for being a pastor or a church leader, that you have also been entrusted with sharing the good news of the gospel to people in your life. And so I just wanna bring us back to the the whole point of today. We said, start with prayer. Let me just ask you this question. Who are you praying for? Pray all prayers for all people, but no, no, let's just get that, okay. Don't just like, Lord, I pray for the world. Yeah, that's great. Who? Let's see some names, okay? Uh, Some of you got one of these bookmarks. We we rolled these out a couple months ago. Uh, They just say, uh, they're part of this prayer initiative, a regional initiative. What I like about this, it's not even like a national or global. It's like in the Intermountain region, right? In, In our region, Uh, And there's 10 names on here. By the way, if you didn't get one of these, we have more of these. Uh, They're they're in the back, and we have ushers. We got these? You can raise your hand if you want one right now, and an usher can bring you one of these during this time. If you already have one, uh, you can just keep your one. Even if you don't have to have it with you right now, by the way. And the whole goal of these, the whole goal of these is to write down 10 names of lost souls, people in your life who don't know Christ yet. And if you, if you don't get one, by the way, right now, you, if you're in the, you can get one on your way out today. They're just gonna be on the surfaces. Here's what I wanna, here's what I wanna give you an opportunity to do. To, pr- to, to fill this out, pray for these names. I would say consistently, perhaps even daily. Keep this somewhere. Keep it in your Bible. Keep it, it's a bookmark. Keep it in a book that you'll read. <laughs> Let's put it on a book that you never <laughs> read and you, you leave up on the shelf. Keep it somewhere visible and then just commit to praying for these people. Here's what I wanna say to you if you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Pray for yourself. For you, before you get to intercession, what's the first kind of prayer? Help. It's petition. If it helps you, write down one name if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, your own name. You don't have to do this, but you could. It's okay. Write down your own name and just pray, God, bring me to a knowledge of the truth. 
I've got all these questions. I've got all this church hurt. I've got all these hesitancies. I've got every reason not to believe. If you were to pray that prayer, this is the most pleasing prayer that you could pray before you're a follower of Jesus. Bring me to a knowledge of the truth. Show me who you are. Reveal your love to me. That's a prayer, by the way, that God just so deeply desires to answer for you. Write your own name down if you need to and just pray and ask that God would reveal himself to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, we're gonna spend a few moments just actually praying right now. And uh, if, you, if you need to fill this out, you can fill this out right now. I just wanna tell you, the first three names on my list are my own three daughters. And we take this for granted a little bit. We think my kids go to church, they'll be saved. My kids grew up in a Christian household, they'll be saved. Have you prayed on your knees with tears for your own children? Are you praying them into the kingdom of heaven? Your neighborhood, are you praying? You do you know the names of your neighbors? If you don't, that's this week. Knock on the door, get to know your neighbors. You notice they're mowing, go out and just figure out, you know, take the garbage out at that time, do something. We've gotta be a presence for the gospel. The gospel takes root in holy ground. Are you praying laps around your neighborhood? We do these prayer walks, these prayer initiatives. It's not because we're like, we did it, hooray, we did a prayer walk. We do it to teach you. This is something we can do every day in our lives. And so we're gonna spend some time in prayer. I just wanna invite you right now. Uh, we're gonna spend a few moments in prayer all together, and I heard how loud it was when Jim told everyone to greet your neighbor. And we, we, we don't tell him to do that, by the way. So we're gonna, we're gonna uh, we don't do that every single week, but here's what I wanna hear. I want all of us to pray out loud. If you need to write down your names, you can spend a few moments thinking, writing down. If you're new to our church, you don't, you don't have to pray out loud if you, don't, if you don't want to. I wanna invite you to pray out loud though, because I want you to, I want us. This is a house of prayer. What is this? It's a house of prayer. When people think of prayer, do they think of Hill City Church? I want them to. I want the neighborhood to hear our prayers this morning. Not just to hear our songs, but to hear our prayers. And I want every single person in this room to hear the voices of other people praying to the same God at the same time who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So I'm just, just for a minute or two, I wanna give you an opportunity. I want us to lift our, our prayers. This is pleasing to God. Not the sacrifices of bulls or goats or lambs, but the prayers of the saints, which rise like a pleasing aroma to the heavens. And just, I wanna, I know it's maybe a little uncomfortable, everyone praying, I want, but just, I just wanna invite you to pray. And after a couple of minutes, I'm gonna come up and I'm gonna close us in a time of prayer. But this is a time, intercessory prayer, okay? Let's pray for our neighborhood. Let's go ahead. Go ahead and start. Everyone start praying right now. Let's pray.
so God, I go before you now and I just ask this prayer that you would teach us how to pray. Would this not merely be a sermon or an initiative or an event or an outreach? God, would this be our life? Would this be how we live our lives so utterly dependent on you like children, God? Would we keep praying? Give us tears. Give us hearts that break and bleed for what makes you you break and bleed. God, I pray for our kids. Would, they, would, would prayer be their native language? Would you teach our little children how to talk to you freely and openly? We wanna see renewal, we wanna see revival, but God, ultimately, we just want you. We want you in our lives. We want that deep relationship with you. We want that for our neighbors, for our family members, God. I pray for the people in the room today who they're not quite ready. They're not quite there for, for a, they're not at their knowledge of the truth. God, bring them to a knowledge of the truth. We love them, God. We long to be with them for eternity in heaven. We long for them to know your grace and your mercy, which you lavish upon us. God, I pray that we would continue to see you do more than we could ask or imagine. And I pray that we would pray to see it happen. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together for this worship. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.